Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, uh, the, just the opportunity that we can get together and just read your word and study it. And Lord, I, I pray and we pray that uh, you will speak to us and that we will learn something from it so that we be, can become more effective in a ministry to, us, uh, to each other. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's, let me give you a personal example. It's a rather worldly one, um, but many years ago when Andrew and I and, uh, and our children were quite young, we were looking at buying a, a block of land, and we saw a block of land. It was about five acres, and it was in pristine condition. It was in a great spot, and the price was just unbelievable okay, for us at that time. However, and the potential was exciting in developing this land. Uh, but as things turned out, we decided not to buy it. Anyway, many years later, we went back to that block of land, and it was unbelievable as to what had happened to it. And there were some of the things that Andrew and I had wished that we could have done with it. And the value of that land was astronomical now. Okay? And just listening to the radio, my favorite radio station, those who know me will know that I'm an ABC listener. And uh, I was listening to a program, and again, this topic came up of how people in the 70s and 80s okay, were bemoaning the fact that they had looked at a property in Surrey Hills and in Annandale and Glee, and it was remarkably cheap, and they could have afforded it but they missed the opportunity, and now those prices, the price of those properties are astronomical, and they're kicking themselves for it. Have you been, ever been in a situation like that? Well, for you younger people, you know, uh, a concert comes up, you know, Ed Sheeran concert comes up, and um, you want to go to it, and you say, no, nah, no. Nah. And then, about a week later, all your friends are saying, yes, we're going to Ed Sheeran, you know? And so you go online to try and buy a ticket, and they're all sold out, a missed opportunity. The parable that was read to us from Luke's Gospel, okay, Jesus talks about amaz an, an amazing invitation, but it also contains a warning. And that warning is not to miss the opportunity of being invited by God himself, because if you do, you will suffer the consequences. Do you like banquets? Those of you who were at my, at my daughter's wedding will know that I like banquets and I like celebrating. Banquets are great things. Um, you know, we, we, we as, as human beings, we're social people, we like to celebrate, you know, anniversaries, weddings in particular. We dress up for them. They're fun, and we could consider it an honor if we're invited. In Bible times, things were no different. People knew how to celebrate, and boy, did they know how to celebrate. And they still do in that part of the world. A wedding doesn't last for three or four hours. A wedding lasts for three or four days. Now, I call that a great wedding. Those of you who are at my wedding, at, at Michaela's wedding, will know that I, I really let my hair down, okay? And um, I don't know whether I could have lasted three or four days, but boy, what a way to go. So it doesn't come as a surprise that banquets played a significant role in Jesus' life and in his teaching. And this, brank, uh, this parable of a banquet that Jesus told is about an invitation. And as I said, it's a warning to both you and me. 
There is little doubt that Jesus' favorite way of teaching was through parables. Why? Why do, you think of, why do you think that? What is a parable? I know that I've been taught, okay, that they are illustrations preachers use to help make their message clear. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But when we read some of Jesus' parable, this seems the exact opposite. Jesus spoke in parables not to simplify the truth of the kingdom, but almost it seems to conceal it from those who resisted God's claim upon them. Parables have another purpose. They're designed to tease, to challenge you, to get behind our mental defenses. They are intent to ask us, what does this mean? Or what can he be getting at? Or, or even, how dare Jesus say that? The parables Jesus told were understood only by those who wanted to know the truth. His, his illustrations were not so much a matter of the head as of the heart. Often Jesus would tell a parable and then walk away without any explanation whatsoever. Eugene uh, Peterson says, parables aren't illustrations that make things easier. They make things harder by requiring the exercise of our imaginations which if we aren't careful, become an exercise of faith. Jesus' intention was to be subversive, to overturn people's lives. As they listened to Jesus sharing parables, they did not hear any mention of God, so there was no challenge to their own in independence. Their defenses were relaxed, and this allowed his words to enter their hearts. Often they, were, they walked away perplexed, wondering, what was that all about? But without them realizing it, the parables lodged in their imagination. And then, perhaps weeks, months, or even years later, the truth would explode in their unprotected hearts. They would realize that even though Jesus had not specifically mentioned God or things of the kingdom, this was really what he was talking about. Those whose hearts were soft towards God no doubt gave themselves deeply to him, whereas those that resisted his words were, were being warned that if they persisted in their hard-hearted defiance, they were heading for spiritual, personal disaster. And so it is here. So, before we look at the, the parable, let's get some context about this parable. Jesus, if, you look, if you've got a Bible, uh, open it up to uh, Luke 14, and uh, from verse 1, um, Jesus was invited to uh, a house of a very important man. He was a ruler, he was a Pharisee, and he's there for, for dinner. There were, of course, others there, and it's really interesting in verse 1 where Luke says, and they were watching him closely. You can imagine it. They're just waiting for him to stuff up so that he, so that they can accuse him and do something about him. But the other significant thing is it's also a Sabbath. Now, in Jewish, being a Jew, okay, you don't work on the Sabbath, and there are massive amount of laws about doing things on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do? He really wants to stir them up, and he wants to poke them and challenge them. So what does he do? He heals a man. Now, before, that they, can, before they can jump up and protest, he justifies his actions. He then notices the behavior of the, un of the invited guests 
And this gives Jesus an, uh, an opening for a lesson on humility, if you look up, if, if you read verses 7 to 11. You see, at this particular feast that Jesus was at, there was an undignified scramble for places of highest honor. In the custom of that time, the closer you were to the host, the more important you were. So what does Jesus do? He comments to everyone around on the danger of such eagerness to get to the top of the table and, and securing the place of honor. What would happen, he says, when you got to, the great spot, to a great spot next to the host, and as you sat down and started drinking your wine, a more important guest walks in through the door. Of course, the host will mention to the guest coming in, and he will say to you, no, you move down to the end of the table, come here and sit next to me. In Eastern society, loss of face is an awful thing. So you can imagine, in front of everybody, him standing up and going and sitting down. The shame of it. However, Jesus isn't just giving some worldly advice about this. He is teaching people to be genuinely humble. And in, and in being truly humble, you receive the honor that is due to you. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He really wants to get under their skin. He really wants to annoy them. Perhaps not annoy them, not the right word, but he wants to grab their attention. He wants to get them by the throat and shake them and say, listen to me, I've got a message here for you. If you look up verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, don't confine, he's talking to the host, and now he turns to the host, so he's really up in the ante. He turns to the host, and he says to him, don't, don't confine your guest list to friends and relatives and rich neighbors, because in doing so, you expect them to return the favor and invite you to feast. So where is the generosity in that? Isn't it much better to invite people that can't return the favor, that is the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind? It's then that you'll find happiness and God will repay you on the day when good men rise from the dead, in verse 14. Now can you imagine he has just told this to the host and everyone is listening. He has ticked the host off in front of all these people. What an explosive comment to make in this setting. It's enough to make the guests with the toughest skin squirm. The tension must have been palatable. What was going to happen next? For goodness sake, this guy is unbelievable. Who does he think he is, shaming the hosts like this? To get away from Jesus' disturbing words and bring the tone down, one of the uh, worthy guests who was invited wants to switch to a more comfortable topic, one that isn't so, so challenging and uncomfortable. So he says, blessed is he who shall eat in the kingdom of God. You almost want to vomit, don't you? He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, you're spot on, and I'm going to change. He skirts the decision he needs to make right then and there. It's an old trick of moving to a broad discussion that doesn't cut close to the bone and requires no action. Jesus' answer to both him and to all of us is this parable about an invitation to a special banquet. It's based on a custom that was wisely used in the days of Jesus. When a person decides to give a party, a celebration, a wedding, whatever it is, or a banquet, he first he sends out 
the first invitation. He wants to honor you. He's inviting you to a, uh, to, um, uh, a banquet. When it's first given, the invitation doesn't mention a day or a time. That comes later. Those invited take note, they accept the invitation, and they wait. When the banquet is ready, the host will then send the servant out and tell everyone, now's the time, come. The guests drop everything, clean themselves up, put on their best clothes, and they attend the feast. So, to the parable itself. As we read, a certain man prepares a banquet, and it's a great one, and he invites many guests. There will be a huge celebration where everything is ready. When everything is ready, he sends out his servant to tell his guests to come. Everything is ready. The host wants to honor them and share a celebration with them. But something unexpected happens. One after the other, the guests say they can't come. Look at the excuses. The first one says he can't come because he's bought a field and has to go and see it. Sorry, give my apologies. Now, who on earth does that? You want to buy a piece of land. You get a surveyor out. You do the conveyancing, okay? You finally, the agreement, you've read the agreement. You've signed on the dotted line. You've been looking over the piece of land for ages. So once you bought it, why do you have to go and look at it? You know what it's all about. What a weak excuse. Sorry, give my apologies. The second has just bought a team of oxen and wants to try them out. Give the host my apologies, he says. I'm sure he will understand. Again, if you go out, if you want to buy a car, you do your research. Okay? You sit in it. You take it for a test drive. You make sure that it's adequate for your needs. The guy would have done the same thing. He would have tested the oxen. Do they carry? Do they work well as a team? Do they plow in a straight line? All that. So he knows. Why does he need to go out and see the oxen again? He's just bought them. He knows that they're good. They, he knows that they work well. What a weak ex excuse. Sorry, I can't come. And the third one says, I've just gotten married. Now, this sounds a good excuse, doesn't it? Sorry, I've just gotten married, and I need time to spend with my wife. Now, guys, we all know in the prime of our marriage, okay, right at the early stage, what a great excuse this was. Okay, yes, you want to spend time and in glory in her, in her beauty. Okay? But why doesn't he, if he really loves her, why doesn't he take her and to the celebration and celebrate with her? I mean, there's a lot more I can say about that, but I won't go into that. How would you feel in this situation if you were the host? You've invited all the people in Robertson, and each one of them has given an excuse not to come. You'd feel distraught. It's like a slap in the face. So what does the, the, um, what does the um, host do? Does he accept this, their excuses as valid? Does he cancel the banquet, or does he give the food to the pigs to eat? No, this isn't the response that the host does. He is angry. If you look at verse 21, he's very angry. And then he tells his servant to go out into the streets and alleys and invite the poor, the crippled, and the blind. Even when this is done, there's still room for more people in verse 23. So the master orders his servants to the highways and the byways, the fields, to bring more people in. He wants his house full. He wants every seat taken. And then the warning comes. And the warning is 
not to just those listening to, to Jesus. The warning is to us, and it's a very solemn warning. And Jesus says this in verse 24. I tell you, not one of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Of course, he's referring to those that had declined the invitation. For it tells us all that to, that to decline the invitation to his banquet has eternal consequences. So where does this parable leave you and me? As we live, we're occupied with lots of routine stuff. We study, we work at our jobs, we follow our retirement plans and routines, we have our busy weekends and vacations, and we have families to look after. Then there are those special events that add spice and excitement to our lives. You know, a celebration here and there, wedding to go to, getting some new equipment, or a toy to play with, a new car, ooh, yes, refurbishing the house, putting on additions, adding to our investments, and so on. All these activities, all activities that in and of themselves are okay, but right smack in the middle of all this busy living comes an invitation to you and me. God's invitation is an invitation to share with him, and the message is clear. The feast is ready, is ready. drop all of your priorities and come. God's calling you to share in the feast. It's an opportunity not to be missed. Why then is it so hard for some of us to accept this invitation? Two reasons come to mind pretty quickly. Firstly, accepting this invitation means we have to give up something that we're enjoying doing. Being who we are, that's hard to give up. It takes a great deal of effort to tear ourselves away as it did for the invited guests in the parable. Their excuses were rooted with things that they enjoyed. That's why in the second place, the invitation never seems to come at the right time. There's always some other stuff that we eagerly look forward to, some other priority that we want to keep on the front burner of our life. Maybe when the projects are done, when we've scored that success, when we've graduated, or have been married for a while, just sometime later, but not now. Now is not the right time. Now there's a special danger here for those of us who have grown up with, with, uh, with the Bible's invitation. We've all read it, we've all studied it, and we've heard all kinds of sermons about it, like you are now. It's all so familiar. But the process that we've lost is the amazement about God inviting us to share in his eternal banquet. The invitation no longer makes us dance in the kitchen with joy. Somewhere inside we say, yes, I ought to accept the invitation, but I'm not ready yet. Maybe, 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 maybe later, okay? Do you know what the greatest miracle is? That God created the world? That Jesus rose from the dead? No, it's not that. What's the greatest miracle? The greatest miracle is that God wants to be your friend. He wants a relationship with you. He wants friendship with you and me. The biggest miracle is that God asks for the honor of your presence at the banquet of his love. God, the awesome creator, the redeemer of the universe, invites you and he invites me to enter into the joy of his love. 
What an invitation. You'll never receive another like it. And this invitation comes to you personally from God through Jesus Christ. It's saying the feast is ready. Come, come now. Don't miss the opportunity that God is giving you. So what was the response to the church in Jesus' time, to, God, uh, to Jesus' invitation? The response was, no thanks. They had their own agendas. They also assumed that at the end of time, they would all be feasting in the kingdom of God. They felt no need for God's invitation through Jesus. They had no desire to accept it. But their rejection was an insult to God and his great love. Today, people in Europe, the America, uh, the USA, and here in Australia are walking away from the Christian church. They don't appreciate that the host who invites them is none other than God, the creator. Because of their Christian background, most of them assume that when they die, they will surely go to a better place. They rank the banquet of God's love well below the many other fascinating things that occupy them. In contrast to the other parts of the world, in Africa, in Japan, in China, thousands and thousands see it as a marvelous invitation. They are stunned by the fact that God should invite them. They recognize that the feast that God is putting on is one of the greatest feasts of all, and they come at his invitation. You see, there is a limit on God's invitation. God will fill his house. Every seat will be taken. But if you and I can't be bothered, God sends his servants to go and find others to fill the seats. What a sad consequence for you and for me. If we leave ourselves out in the cold, the things we prefer, we prefer above God's peace are ever so brief. When they have run out, and run out they will, what kind of life is left to us? A life without God's love and without the joy that Jesus brings, Jesus' love brings. So what are, what are you going to do? So what are you doing with God's invitation today? What's your response? Are we overwhelmed that none other than God invites us to his feast with him? That it's the invitation to the great feast of his love for you and me? Will we chuck out our excuses and accept the invitation? The feast is ready. The invitation is to you and me. Shall we drop everything and accept, or are you going to send an apology? Which will it be? If you do accept the invitation, you will discover how awesome is the host that invited you. You'll dance with joy that you received an invitation to the feast that never ends. God is the eternal host of love. Don't miss this opportunity that God has given you. Accept it and experience God's great love, his love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great love. Thank you for this story that Jesus told. Thank you for the invitation to the feast, with, to feast with you forever. Father, help us to understand fully the implication of accepting or not accepting this invitation. Help us not to have hardened hearts and miss the opportunity 
but help us to accept Jesus as our Savior and to experience the great joy of having you as our Father and friend. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.